Good morning. Morning. This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to cover verses 1 through 15. What do you think? You ready for that? <laughs> so, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to cover verses 1 through 15. Before we get started, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. I thank you for the ways that you guide and provide, the ways you speak to us. I'm just asking you would speak to us here this morning. That we would hear your words, not mine. You would lead us and guide us through this study. That you would just reveal yourself more to us, who you are, how you interact with us, and how you love us. It's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So we'll contrast the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and, and look more into what that is. And just some of the things that God points out in His Word. That this was always His plan and We'll try to explain a little bit of why would God have the plan like this? Why not just give us the new covenant right off the bat, right? Isn't that a reasonable question? Chapter 9, verse 1. Isn't that a reasonable question? Why wouldn't God just give us the new covenant right away? Why wouldn't he just start with that? Have you ever thought of that? Yeah. So we'll talk through that today. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. The first room where a lampstand <laughs> in the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room, called the Most Holy Place. In that room were a gold incense altar, a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched over the ark's cover, the, <coughs> whose wings stretched over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. We'll get into that briefly. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. He always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place 
was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So by these regulations, by this system set up, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open, right? And what was in the most holy place? That was where they said the presence of God was. So that in this system of laws and rules and regulations and animal sacrifices that only covered up your sins, didn't take away your sins, there wasn't this free access to God, right? And so we're going to take a look at some of the things that... Um, led up to that and why is that important and then we'll talk through why not just start with the new covenant so to get started with that let's go to exodus chapter 40 starting in verse 20. so exodus chapter 40 starting in verse 20. so we'll read about the tabernacle which we just read about and that was the temporary house of God, the temporary place of worship that traveled with the Israelites while they were wandering through the wilderness and even as they entered into the promised land while they were establishing their, their land that God had given them. While they were driving out their enemies, they still had the tabernacle. It wasn't until later on, until Solomon, that they built the temple. And the temple had the same rooms. They had a most holy place in the holy place. And there was a curtain or a veil that separated them. And this is a probably a time for another study, but the curtain wasn't just some thin curtain. It was a thick, very heavy curtain that separated this. So, anyways, Exodus chapter 40, verse 20. Are you ready? So Exodus chapter 40, verse 20, he took the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant and placed them inside the ark. Then he attached the carrying poles to the ark and he set the ark's cover in the place of atonement on top of it. Then he brought the ark of the covenant to the tabernacle and hung the inner curtain to shield it from view, just as the Lord had commanded him. Next, Moses placed the, the table in the tabernacle along the north side of the holy place, just outside the inner curtain. And he arranged the bread of presence on the table before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. So the Lord gave Moses this idea, this very descriptive blueprint of how to build this tabernacle. And this tabernacle is a replica of what heaven's like right so we'll read more about that here in a minute but this tabernacle had a curtain that separated the inner room from the outer room that's very important right the presence of god was seen to be seen there some other notable things is that you had the place of atonement um, <clears throat> oftentimes would be called the mercy seat and that was what was on top of the ark Who's going to sit in that place of atonement or mercy seat or place of judgment? And it would be Jesus. And then you have these mighty cherubim that are up 
stretched over that, and they're both pointing towards that place of atonement. Everything that that God does is always pointing towards Jesus. So, even from the beginning, Jesus is very much a part of everything that God's doing. This was not an afterthought. So God very carefully thought out the first covenant and the second covenant. There was a reason for it. We'll talk more about that. But let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 6. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 6. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 6, we briefly read back there in Exodus about Moses and the tabernacle and how it was set up. It was this temporary tent that they would tear down and move with them so they always had a place to worship God. And now in 1 Kings, we're going to read about Solomon, King Solomon, David's son, who's building the temple. This would be like a permanent structure, a place to worship God. So... We'll pick up 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 6. Then the priest, the priests carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Right? So the, the <coughs> so the ark that had the atonement, the place of atonement, the mercy seat. They placed that beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim are outstretched. I would submit to you or say to you, they're pointing towards that. Who's going to sit on that seat? Jesus. So they're pointing towards Jesus. And this is a replica of what we see in heaven. So what do we expect to see in heaven? I think we can expect to see in heaven that Jesus is sitting on the ark where the place of atonement is. And the cherubim, these mighty angels, are pointing towards him. Right? That's what we could expect to see. So, the cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy over the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the temple's main room, the holy place, but not from the outside. They were still, they are still there to this day. Nothing in the ark except the tombstone tablets that Moses had placed in it in Mount Sinai, where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. When the priest came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because the cloud for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. God's presence filled the temple as they finished it, right? So this is where God's presence are. Does that mean that God was only present in the temple? No, because the God that we serve is omnipresent or omnipotent. What does that mean? That means he is everywhere at all times. That means he's with you, with me, with each of us, always, and always has been. But this was a, a symbol or <coughs> a very visual aspect for the nation of Israel to see that their God was present with them. That makes sense? Okay. But again, we read that 
there was a curtain that separated these two rooms, both in the tabernacle and in the temple. <clears throat> and that's important. Because we are going to go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. So the old covenant was based off of atonements for our sins, based off of animal sacrifices that covered up our sins but didn't take away our sins, right? It was based on a law that you had to follow, follow all these rules and regulations. But what happens? We can't live up to that, right? We can't be perfect. We fall short every single time. So why would God do this first and not just go right to the new covenant, right to his son? Because he is showing us our need for him. If he'd gone right to the new covenant, right to mercy and grace and Jesus removing our sins by his sacrifice on the cross, then we wouldn't fully understand our need for him, right? Do you think that even happens today, that people don't fully understand their need for Jesus? Absolutely. So I would say to you, the reason that God did what he did, this was never an afterthought. We've been over this. We learned that in Genesis, right there at the fall, God made it very clear that the seed of the woman, which women don't have seed, right? Men have seed. But the seed of the woman would be against Satan. And that, that spoke right there of the virgin birth that would come. <clears throat> that in God's plans that he would send his son. He would sacrifice his one and only son for our sins to pay the penalty that we deserve. <clears throat> so, Matthew Chapter 27, verse 50. So this is it, the death of Jesus. He's been crucified on the cross, and here we'll pick it up as he dies. <laughs> and this is very significant. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So at the moment Jesus died, this curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two. And this just wasn't some curtain that you have hanging on your wall you know, or your windows. Even if you have a, a blackout curtain, a very thick one, still not even comparable. This curtain was very, very thick. And at the moment Jesus died, this curtain is torn in two. And the symbolism of that or the symbolicness of that is that you always, everyone always had access to God, right? They could always pray to God, but this was making it very, very clear that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that his atonement for our sins, that him taking away our sins was the only real way that we could have that fellowship with God, that we could come into that most holy place. Only the priest went in there once a year, right? But now we can go into that most holy place, into the presence of God, anytime we want. And why can we do that? Because Jesus took away our sins, right? Does that make sense? Can we come into the most holy place, into God's presence, still covered neck deep in sin? No. Can we come into God's presence when we're only covered up our sins? No. The only way that we can really come into God's presence as we confess our sins, we repent from our sins, we live a life differently, and that Jesus takes away our sins. And he takes away our sins because of his willing sacrifice on the cross. 
And it's only because we had the first covenant and the second covenant that we can fully understand that. Does that make sense? We, we only had the first or the new covenant probably wouldn't fully understand how important this is, how significant this is and what Jesus death on the cross really did for us. Right. Does that make sense? Kind of, or do you want to talk about that a little more? That makes sense to you. The, the first covenant didn't take away our sins, but the second covenant, Jesus' sacrifice did take away our sins. Very important. So let's look at a few of the other Gospels, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this curtain being ripped. So let's go to Mark chapter 15, verse 37. So here we are, Mark chapter 15, verse 37. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. So again, we read the moment that Jesus died, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two. Again, very significant. Let's go to Luke chapter 24, verse 44. So Luke chapter 24, verse 44. So Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me. Well, I think I might be on the wrong one. That's embarrassing. Let's try Luke chapter 23, verse 44. That might be the right one. So Luke chapter 23, verse 44. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. And suddenly, the curtain in the inner sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what happened, he worshipped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. <coughs> so here we read again that when Jesus died, that curtain was torn into very significant because now 
Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, this new covenant takes away our sins. That is huge, right? Our record is wiped clean. It's like you've never did the wrong things you did in your life. God doesn't keep track of them. And because of that, we can truly be washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus. And when we are washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus, when we repent, ask him to forgive us, we confess our sins, we live a, a life different from what we've lived, he removes our sins, and we can come boldly into the throne room of God. We can come boldly into that most holy place. We can come boldly to the presence of God, and he will listen to what our, what our thoughts are, what our prayers are, what our concerns are, our desires are, right? Because he is with each and every one of us. He's omnipresent, everywhere at all times. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. So Galatians 3, 21. So does this kind of make sense as to why you needed the first covenant, the law, to show that by ourselves we couldn't keep the law, we couldn't be perfect, we needed someone to take our place, we needed Jesus. If we didn't have the first covenant, we wouldn't understand how significant the second covenant is. And then this was never an afterthought. It wasn't, oh, God created the earth and people were sinful. And he didn't see this coming, though he knew right from the beginning. Right there in creation, in Genesis, the beginning, we get to read that his plan was he would send his son to pay the penalty for our sins. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we would be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. So the other difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that we are promised eternal life in the New Covenant. And that eternal life can only be received when we believe in Jesus. By confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus died for our sins, are we set free. We can be set free from all those sins that enslaved us, all those things that always attracted us and brought us back um, and brought us back down the level they wanted us we could be freed from all those things the anger the hate the selfishness the addictions all of that can be broke free because of the work jesus did on the cross we are a slave to sin but after jesus comes into our life we are no longer a slave we can willingly shackle ourselves to those sins but we're not forced to right jesus broke those chains and when he broke those chains when we believe in him, we have eternal life. And that's the, the new covenant, right? And how much greater is that eternal life and that freedom from sin than the old covenant? Where the old covenant, you were a slave to sin, but those sins always ensnared you. You could never get free from them, right? So, again, the new covenant, if you didn't have the old covenant, we wouldn't understand how great this new covenant is and how much better God's plan is when we follow it. 
how many times in your life have you had it all planned out? You thought, I'm going to do this, this, and this. But we didn't go to God first. We didn't. We weren't patient enough to let him do the work through it. And when we got all said and done, our plan wasn't very good. But when God intervened and did things in the way that only he can, his plan was so much better than ours. So much better than anything we could have ever dreamed up ourselves, right? And that's kind of this first covenant and second covenant thing. The first covenant is very dependent on what we do. If we can keep all the law and we do everything just right and live my life just right, I'll be in good shape. But the second covenant, the covenant of mercy and grace, that's by Jesus' sacrifice is so much better. It's not dependent on me at all. In fact, the best thing I can do is go to God first with everything. Let him make every decision in my life and just trust that he's got it all figured out so I don't have to. But what do I have to do? I have to have that faith and trust in him. I need to be that light and witness to him. I need to go to him regularly in his word, in his prayer. I need to spend time with him. I need to be in fellowship with him. My life needs to revolve around him. And then I can live a life that truly glorifies him. And we will go through hard times. The Bible guarantees us of that. But we can go through those hard times with his peace and his presence and his comfort. The Bible makes it very clear that God is the God of all comfort. And the reason that he comforts us is so that we can comfort others. And when we comfort others, we should be pointing them towards Jesus, the source of all of our comfort. And how can he comfort us? Because he's already been through it, right? When he was here on this earth, did people make fun of him? Did people belittle him? Did people lie about him? Did people scheme against him? Absolutely. Have you ever had that happen in your life? Yes. So he already knows exactly what you're going through. He knows everything that you've been faced with. All the temptations you're faced with, he was faced with himself. How much better is this second covenant? Because the God that created everything came down and lived the same life we live and knows exactly what we're going through. So when we think that we're all on our own, Nobody understands me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. There is one person that always understands and knows exactly what you're going through. And his name is Jesus. And he always has understood and he always will understand. And we can always go to him for all of that understanding. Does that make sense? Make sense how much better this second covenant is because of the work that Jesus did on the cross for each and every one of us. Okay, let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer were not able to cleanse our consciences. <laughs> Let me read that one again. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer were not able to cleanse the consciousnesses of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations, that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So what this is saying right here is that we can ask for forgiveness and those sins are wiped clean, but the old system 
couldn't cleanse their consciousness. They could always think it could be never set free from what they did in their past, right? Because their sins were never really removed from their record. Their sins were only covered up by these animal sacrifices, by this religious <laughs> tradition. But now with Jesus' sacrifice, our sins are removed and our consciences can be cleared and set free. So have you ever had it happen in your life where you've asked for forgiveness for sins <clears throat> and you believe that you're forgiven, but you still can't stop remembering it or thinking about it, right? Have you ever had that happen? And your conscience isn't really cleared or cleansed? Well, what God's word is saying right here is that with Jesus' sacrifice, you have that ability. And so if you have that ability and it's a struggle, what do we do? We go to God and ask him, God, help me to believe what you're telling me. Believe that I am set free from this sin. That this sin doesn't define who I am. You've made a promise to me right here, God, right? His whole words filled with his promises. You've made a promise to me right here that I can be, my conscience can be cleansed. Help me with that. Remove these thoughts from my mind. Fill them with you. Draw me closer to you, right? When our prayer is like that, when our prayer lines up with God's word, when we are believers in Jesus Christ, he's coming to our life and our prayer lines up with God's will. Does he answer it? We've been over this 100% of the time. Every single time he answers it, in his timing and in his way. And it may be instantly, it may be over time, but over that period of time where we're waiting for that answer, what are we to do? Continue to go to him in prayer regularly for this. Continue to ask him and he will answer. He's made that clear, right? We've been over the story of the persistent widow who went to the judge for a just ruling and he ignored her at first, but then she continued after him and continued after him. And he finally gave a just ruling. And while that sounds harsh, well, why would God not give this just ruling? It's an example. It's a, a story. And when we press further into the story, what the story is trying to tell us is be persistent in your prayers like this widow was persistent. And God will always answer you, right? And it's giving us that idea of a persistence in our prayer life. So keep that in mind. Let's go to a, a couple places, though, to expand on that just a little bit further. The first one we want to go to is 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not just some of our sins, not just a few of our sins, all sin. We've been over this. There's times where people say there's certain unforgivable sins, 
And there's really only one unforgivable sin, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And when we looked at the the job or the role the Holy Spirit plays, the number one role that the Holy Spirit plays is pointing us to Jesus. And so if we are continually rejecting Jesus, we're calling the Holy Spirit a liar because the Holy Spirit's first job is to point each and every one of us to Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that when we believe in him, all these things will be added to us, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. But when we continue to call the Holy Spirit a liar, that's not true. Jesus isn't really God. Jesus isn't really the forgiver of sins. We're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and that's the unforgivable sin. So once we've gotten past that, once we believe in Jesus, is there any sin that we've ever committed in our lives that's not forgivable? And the answer to that is no. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. Every single sin we've ever committed, his blood cleanses us from that. He paid the price on the cross for every one of those sins. He knew every sin we'd ever commit, and all those sins were taken out on the cross. So we'll continue on here. 1 John chapter 1, we'll continue in verse 8. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Not just some, all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So if we say, I've never sinned, I don't do that. I don't live a life like that. We're a good Christian family. You're calling God a liar and his word is not in your heart. And who is his word? Well, we've been over this. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, Jesus is the Word, right? The Word was with God. The Word is God. So Jesus is not in our hearts when we claim we have no sin. So what do we do? Verse 9 is very important. But if we confess our sins to Jesus, what is confession admitting that we've done wrong? And if we want to know our maturity level as a Christian, how long does it take us to confess these sins? Do we argue with God, try and rationalize this? Everyone else does it for days, weeks, months, years? Or as soon as we've done something wrong, are we willing to admit it? God, I made a mistake. Please forgive me. So confessing our sins to him, who is Jesus, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. So when he forgives us from our sins, he also cleanses our hearts. He also leads us away from those wicked thoughts, those wicked desires, those things that draw us away from him. And that is a process. And oftentimes that is a lifelong process. But he is constantly drawing us away from that. And our prayer should be every day, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I should call him out specifically in my prayer life with him and fill me with more of you. Lead me away from all those things. And over time, you will see God work in your life. So the next place we want to go is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. So 1 first, first Timothy chapter 2. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. 
For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. So there is only one God, one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. Right? So under the law, if we lived this perfect life, we could be made right with God, but no one could live that perfect life. And so there's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through the mediator, through Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, that can we be made right with God, that we can confess our sins, that he is just to forgive our sins. He removes them from our record. We are washed white as snow, and we can come boldly into the presence of God. Does all this make sense? All these connections? It's very significant that that curtain was torn, giving us a very clear visual of what that's like now. When Jesus died on the cross, it was finished. There is no more need for anything else. He did it all. And that the moment he died, that most holy place, that inner part of the, the tabernacle, the inner part of the temple was opened up to each one of us. That we can go directly to God of how much he loves us how much he cares for us, that he was willing to send his one and only son to die in our place for our sins. Not for his, but for ours. So let's finish up Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. So this tabernacle in heaven, the one that we had here on earth is just a replica. But the one in heaven was not created by human hands. It was created by God himself, by Jesus. And that Jesus is the high priest over all. So this person that could give us access to the most holy place for our sins was Jesus himself. And then he opened up that curtain. That curtain was torn so we could have access to God. And that all the good things that we have are because of him. So when we talk about God's glory, we talk about the work in our lives, any of the good things that have ever happened in our lives, he gets the glory for. So continue on here in verse 12. With his own blood, not the blood of, of with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurities. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by power 
of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So here again we read that Jesus' sacrifice can cleanse our consciences. And that when we go to him, we can go to God confidently that he truly does remove it from our record. And when we struggle with that, we can always ask God. And will he do things that lines up with his will for the believers of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes, 100% of the time. So if we're struggling with our consciences, with being truly forgiven for the sins that we've committed, we should go to God and ask him for that. Help me to receive a clear conscience for the sins I've committed, God. And will he do that? The answer is yes. Every single time, 100% of the time, in his timing and in his way. And we should be persistent in our asking for that, if that's something that we're struggling with. That is why, here in verse 15, that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised for them. So who is better to mediate this covenant between God and people? There's no one better than Jesus. Jesus lived the life here on earth. He knows our struggles. He knows our challenges. He knows what we're tempted with. He knows how people can treat us. He knows how this world can mislead us. He knows it all. There's no one better to mediate a new covenant between God and people than Jesus himself. Does that make sense? That he is the perfect sacrifice, but he's also the perfect mediator. He is the perfect God. There is no sin in him at all. And all who are called, who did God call? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that the whole world through him might be saved. So not just some, not just a few, but the whole world he called. It's God's will that all would repent and come to know him. That's the will of God. So we'll continue on. We'll finish up Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised for them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. And that is why the second covenant is so much better. And why we needed the first covenant first. To truly understand how much better God's plan is. Right? This is exactly what happens in our lives. This first covenant is really our lives. This is, hey, I'll do all of God. I got it all figured out. And the second covenant is when we let God handle it. Right? How often does that happen in our lives? Probably more than we'd like to admit. But what should we do first? We should always go to God first with everything in our lives and let him lead and guide, even when we don't understand. Because 100% of the time, it works out far better than anything we could have ever planned. Maybe not initially, maybe not instantly, but in time. And so many times in my life have I seen that, where I've gone through something, a tough time or something hard, but months later, years later, there was a lot to be learned from that. And I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't, gone through some of those tough times and that those tough times helped to advance my career, my relationship with God, my relationship with my family, all those different things. So that's where we'll finish up today. Do you have any questions? Covered that flawlessly? Not one single question? Because Kennedy's not here. All right.
And let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to come together, to learn more about you, your will, your ways, your word, how you relate to us, how you understand us, how you love us, how you're always there for us. You never leave us, you never abandon us. How you can not only forgive our sins, remove them from our record, but also cleanse our consciences. That you are the perfect mediator to mediate this new relationship between God and people that only you can do. Jesus, I'm thankful for many things in my life, but I am very, very thankful for the sacrifice you made on the cross, your willing sacrifice for each and every one of our sins, that when we believe in that, we have eternal life. And I'm very thankful for that. I ask you would lead us and guide us this week. You would help us be a light and a witness to you in ways that only you can. It's in Jesus' mighty name I pray all these things. Amen.